Good morning, church. Please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. This morning we'll be in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Excuse me. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat, and if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it um, and open it up. If you uh, don't have a physical Bible uh, with you, I want to point you towards in the back. We have, I think, I see four more copies, maybe it's just three, it's a little ways away and they're small, uh, of the Mark journals. If you wouldn't mind at some point, if you need one of those, grab it. Feel free to grab that. It's just a simple way for you to follow along with us as we finish the book of Mark this, uh, this fall winter. Uh, I want to point you out a couple things. One, if you are a member of Trailview Church, you've covenanted together with the members of Trailview Church uh, toward uh, us collectively reaching our community, displaying the gospel, and caring for one another as members of one body. Uh, tonight we have a very important meeting. That's our first of the school year. We don't meet in the summer. Uh, family member meeting where our members come together. Uh, we do this every other month from August through May. Uh, and this is the first one. And in this one, we always uh, share with you, hey, here's what our budget looks like for this year. Hey, here's what the uh, priorities for our church for this next year are going to be. And unpack some of those things, as well as just seek God on behalf of one another in prayer and a few other things. So be here this evening, 6 to 7.30, if you're a member of Trailview. Also, if you have uh, believed the gospel of Jesus and you have not followed him in believer's baptism, which would mean that you were baptized after you confessed Jesus as your Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead. After you became a Christian, you were baptized, like Jesus instructs us. If you have not been baptized, but have believed the gospel on September 10th, we are having baptisms. And so in the uh, in an email I sent out earlier this week, uh, well, I didn't, but someone sent out on my behalf, uh, you would have seen that link uh, to go on and fill out a form to start the process towards you following Jesus in baptism, making your faith in Him public, which is what baptism is about. Uh, you can go on there or grab me or fill out that nice little connect card and check the box for baptism. Uh, we'd love to walk through that with you. It's an awesome Sunday where we celebrate and hear some amazing stories about how God has rescued and saved kids all the way up through adults uh, to, uh, to, to save them and how He 
he, how he has done that. Um, and so it's a super exciting, fun Sunday at, at Trailview for sure. Um, so that's all I got for you in that regard. Let's dive in here in Mark chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 12. Uh, and as we start off and dive into this passage, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you got really angry? I'm just all up in your business today. We start praying in such a way this morning about... People just say, it's kind of a a faux pas to tell people how to parent. If you don't do that, we just prayed about parenting in a very intentional and and personal way. And then we're going to start off here. When's the last time you got really angry? Um, When was the last time... What was it that made you angry? Uh, Or we're going to use another word that can be uh, used for uh, anger today. Um... What, what's the last thing that made you indignant? Again, that's not a word that we commonly use, but the word indignant means to become angry at some form of uh, misuse or abuse against other people. Here's the deal. Uh, it, you can tell a lot about yourself, and you can tell a lot about others by what makes them angry. By what makes you angry. What, what, what it was or what consistently causes anger or rage inside of you, or bitterness, which is the root of anger in you, tells us something, tells you something about what's going on inside of you. At Trailview, we acknowledge this reality. We don't follow our emotions, but our emotions are really great clues to what's going on inside of our hearts. They're like little signals that I can go like, oh, you know, why am I angry right now? And I can chase that down, not to go like, oh, I'm going to follow my heart, but to identify what's going on in my heart and then bring that humbly before our God. In the passage we get to in Mark chapter 11 today, we see Jesus get very angry. Jesus doesn't get angry very often. He does speak very clearly and boldly and, uh, and directly in judgment and condemnation to some people at times. We see him call the Pharisees uh, broods of vipers, which is literally like a bundle of a snake den. Uh, we see him uh, say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, like warning, caution, you're doing some really bad stuff. But we see him get angry today in this passage. And it's interesting that uh, as we walk through this passage, it's all very interlinked. And so uh, as I originally mapped out the rest of the Gospel of Mark, I had planned to just look at the fig tree in isolation, and in that, in my mind, I jumped over the cleansing of the temple, which is why last week I said it's not in Mark when it is in Mark, and we're going to talk about it today, because in my mind it was a jump past it. Um, uh, But it's all one story and one passage. And and, and along that, it, it unveils something to us. And here's the main point for the whole morning for us. It's this. The gospel, belief that Jesus died on the cross to pay for all of your sin, the sins you've done in the past, the sins you will do in the future, The belief that Jesus came and offered himself as a sacrifice once for all for your sin. And then he rose from the dead, securing eternal life for those who believe, and ascended to the Father's heaven, or the Father's uh, to heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. Securing salvation for those who believe. That belief in the gospel frees us from something. And it frees us from hypocrisy. It frees us from hypocrisy. And that's what the whole uh, cursing of the fig tree, cleansing of the temple situation and scenario is. And so we're going to walk through this in three parts as the story kind of unpacks and unfolds. And it starts with this prophetic symbol, then it'll go on down through the, uh, the indignation or the anger of the King Jesus and finish out with, with God's delight in our, our, our faith. And so, so start with me at that prophetic symbol point that we see in verses 12 through 14. 
So Jesus and disciples, to set the stage for us, if you missed last week, you can go listen to the podcast if you want to. Uh, uh, they, they enter the city of Jerusalem, and he enters as the king, as the king was promised to enter, riding on a donkey. It was really abnormal, really humble. Some really cool stuff happens there. He leaves the city uh, after that, and then the next day he comes back in the city. It's Passover time. There's thousands, if not millions, of Jews in Jerusalem or in the area. The disciples and Jesus seem to be staying in a city called Bethany. It's a couple miles outside of the city. And every day, for a few days... In this last week of Jesus' life, they come in the city, they do some stuff, they leave the city and go back to where they're staying. Um, and so here we see on, on the next day after he entered and left the city as king, in verse 12 it says this, On the following day when they came to Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So it starts with this really odd moment, uh, this really strange scenario and situation where Jesus uh, sees this tree and he knows it's a fig tree. Fig trees are supposed to be filled with figs, but it's not the season for figs. It, it would be the equivalent of like you wanting some pecans, we're in Texas, and you see a pecan tree and it's got all the leaves and everything on it and you walk up to it and you're like, where's the, where's the pecans? And it's March and the pecans haven't started growing yet. Uh, but, but one thing that's really important for, the, for us here is that we can get very confused by what's happening here if we take it out of the context of the whole of what's happening around it. Uh, so we can get really confused by a couple of phrases that are in here. We can get confused by the phrase that Jesus says that Jesus was hungry and go like, oh, this must just be Jesus on a, uh, a, uh, a hangry moment. Um, where he's hungry, and he's so hungry that he gets mad, and, and he curses a fig tree. Um, we, and if we read this out of context, we can go like, oh, this is just a display of the power of God over creation, and he can do whatever he wants with any of it, and if he wants to curse a fig tree, he can curse a fig tree. And it's like, well, well hold on, let's, let's read this in the context of what's actually taking place here. You see, when Jesus looks, he sees this tree from afar. He doesn't like walk up to it and he's like, oh, hey, look, a fig tree, guys, look at this. No, he sees it from a distance. And from a distance, this tree looks very luscious, very vibrant, life lively. It's got tons of leaves and foliage. It's probably branching off in some really cool ways. And, and it's, it's probably providing shade. And on a distant view, it looks healthy. Keep that in mind. This fig tree, from a distance, looks healthy. And healthy trees produce their, their fruit, their produce. Whatever kind of tree they may be, they produce their, their fruit. And this tree, by all means, from a distance, looks healthy and looks vibrant. It looks like a, like a healthy tree. But as they approach the tree and get closer, they reveal something about the tree. It reveals that even though from a distance this tree looks like it's fruitful... It's not. That it has all the visual signs that it should have fruit. It's stacked with leaves and foliage and branches or broad and, and it's filled with green and looks lively, but it's fruitless. So Jesus, in this moment, he curses the tree. And he curses it in such a way he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And you see, this, this moment of the cursing of the fig tree is not about the fig tree. It's not about Jesus' hunger. It's not about Jesus displaying the power of God, although this does. 
This is a very interesting moment where Jesus does a miracle unlike any other miracle that he's done before. John tells us in the Gospel of John that, it, that all the books of the world couldn't be filled with the, uh, could not be filled with the miracles that Jesus did. That he did that many things, many wonders and signs. But this is the only miracle we have recorded that Jesus did that was destructive. He's restoring life, literally bringing people back from the dead, fixing people's physical ailments, healing people, blindness, death, uh, casting out demons, doing all these things that are restorative works of the power of God, and this moment's a destructive work of the power of God. But why? Why does Jesus do this? Like I said, without context, we get confusion. And we can run rabbit trails and come to conclusions about what Jesus is doing here, disconnected from the context of what's taking place. But what's happening here is Jesus is performing a prophetic symbol. In the Old Testament, God called, raised up prophets in the Old Testament who would do all kinds of things. Some really, really weird things that were physical signs, warnings, displays of what God was saying to His people. Sometimes those were accompanied with direct words. Sometimes those were just a physical sign. And like I told you, there's some weird ones in the Old Testament. God tells these guys, these, there's even women, to do some really weird things as prophetic signs and symbols or warnings or even at times indictments against people, someone individually or some ones, Israel particularly, or its religious leaders. And in the same way, Jesus is showing himself, you may be familiar with this, this, Jesus is the embodiment of the prophet, priest, and king. He is the king of God's people. He is the high priest who enters the temple and, uh, and makes one sacrifice once for all, and he is the prophet who declares what is to be true. And in this moment, he's displaying himself as the prophet, like not the, as in the, he's not God prophet, but God in flesh fulfilling the perfect prophet. And he's doing a prophetic symbol. And that prophetic symbol is intended to bring a warning or indictment against God's people about something that he is angry about. About something that stirs up in him wrath that would move him powerfully to destroy something. So this, this moment, this miracle where Jesus curses this tree is a prophetic symbol intended to warn someone or someones about something, something important. Specifically, to bring a warning to those who from a distance look fruitful and vibrant and luscious and flourishing, but upon closer inspection are fruitless. It's the beginning of a passage in Jesus, a day in Jesus' life that even for us today reveals God's deep concern about true spiritual health and vitality. That God is more concerned about your spiritual health and vitality than the external perception of spiritual health and vitality. And we see this in this symbol, that as Jesus from afar sees a tree that looks fruitful, but upon closer inspection, finds it to be fruitless. And so this seems to be, like I said, in its individual looking, like a random 
out of nowhere, Jesus is hangry moment. But it's much more than that, because the story keeps going. So he not only walks by this tree on the way into the city of Jerusalem, but he continues on the road. He doesn't stop, he doesn't teach, he doesn't instruct, he doesn't tell the disciples why he did this and what he said, because it's a prophetic symbol. And then the story keeps going. Look with me in verse 15. And this is where we see the indignation or the anger of the king. In verse 15 it says, And they came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. You see Jesus display righteous indignation. His anger. That he takes this prophetic symbol and this cursing of a tree, and then he walks straight into the temple. He was in the temple the day before, so he knows what's happening. He went in the temple the day before, and then he just he left. And the day he goes right back into the temple, and what does he find? The same thing, likely, that he saw the day before. And so it's likely that he sees what's happening in the temple on the first day. He goes out of the temple. His righteous, which means good, anger and indignation towards what he saw is stirring in his heart. He performs a prophetic symbol, and then he re-enters the temple, the place to where uh, he finds righteous, uh, something to be very angry about. And to be clear, uh, Jesus' anger is not like, oh, I'm, you guys are being bad. He does a very violent thing. I don't know if you're aware of this. Like, if you, you may have never done this. I don't think I've ever done this. Anybody ever walked up and just like flipped the table completely full of stuff? When that happens, it's not a like, hey guys, can you all back up? Like, watch out, I'm going to like slowly tilt the table. Stuff's going to fall, and we're going to slowly just like lay it down on the side so that all this stuff falls down as a sign that, hey, what you're doing is really bad. No, no, he, it's a violent act to flip a table. Like, it, it, just picture it in your mind if you've never done it. Maybe you shouldn't. Like, 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 it's a violent act to go up to a table and fling the thing up in the air, and everything on it goes flying. It's a violent moment on purpose here in the temple, where Jesus flips the tables, overturns them, and all of the stuff on the tables goes, goes everywhere. Where he overturns the chairs, the stools, that the people who are selling pigeons and other kinds of livestock in the temple, that Jesus, in righteous anger and indignation at what's taking place in the temple, goes in, and flips it upside down. And he runs them out of the temple. And he makes some powerful declarations. And so uh, to put this in perspective for us to kind of understand what it would have looked like or could have looked like, uh, imagine the temple you walk into. So the temple's got multiple areas or courts, the Bible calls it. It has the Holy of Holies, which is where the, the, the Ark of the Covenant is. It's where the, the Spirit of God dwelt and only the high priest once a year enters that place to make an offering and sacrifice of blood to God on behalf of the people. And then you have uh, the 
the court of the Jews, which is like a, a slightly larger area where the Jews would go in and they would do all of their practices and worship. And then you have a much, much larger area called the court of the Gentiles, which these were like concentric circles going out from the middle. Uh, and the court of the Gentiles, which is where this is taking place, uh, when Jesus enters the temple and sees this, he would have seen most likely massive crowds of people, uh, lines of people going out from, from different stations and spots and booths and things that are happening, lines to get in the temple because you had to pay money to get in the temple too, uh, all kinds of stuff. To, like Imagine um, uh, you walk up to church or you go up to the temple, and there's a booth there right outside where you have to exchange money so that you can get money that you're allowed to use in the temple because you're not allowed to use the money you brought with you in the temple. It's the equivalent of a take a livestock show and auction and a theme park lines and a market square and the noise of Wall Street all in one place. The court of the Gentiles. The place where the Gentiles were, was meant for them to be able to gather and worship the Lord. And, and how, how big of a crowd are we talking here? Uh, there's a historian from a long time ago named Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, historian who wrote a whole bunch of uh, uh, books on the history of, of this time and day. And in AD 65, which is probably 30-ish, somewhere in that range, years after this, he wrote that there were 255,600 lambs offered up as sacrifice in the week of Passover. Uh, that was, like I said, about 30 years after the moment Jesus cleansed the temple here. Uh, so you're talking 255,600 lambs that were sacrificed in one week's time in the temple. Uh, imagine you have one lamb per 10 people for family. That, that means that there could likely have been over 2.5 million people in the city of Jerusalem for Passover. It's a lot of people, a lot of crowds, a lot of things taking place. It was a loud, noisy temple. It would have been deafening, merchants shouting from stalls, people bartering for dove or, or pigeon or for, for lambs or for, for other uh, types of herbs that would be offered as, as burnt offerings to the Lord. Imagine uh, the, the battering and pushing and shoving of, of pilgrims who've made this long walking journey to their jostling by one another, fighting, yelling, screaming over, no, no, I'll give you this much for that lamb, or no, I want that lamb, not that lamb, and like all this stuff going on. It'd be loud, busy, chaotic, lots of what looks like unrest. Imagine a livestock pen in the middle of your church. Like, it would smell horrible. Like All these things are happening in the temple. But not to mention that Jesus calls this specifically. He says, you've made a den of robbers. Because it's not just that they have made sacrificing incredibly efficient and convenient. But that they've also begun extorting people. That in this day and time, uh, they did not let you use currency that had the image of other gods or kings in the temple. Which means if you had your Greco-Roman coins that you would use, you had to go and exchange it for temple money. It would be like going to a theme park or a fair, and you buy all the tickets. It's an exchange moment, but guess what? Those tickets are only good at that fair. So you go in and you exchange your money, and they can pick however much they want to make that exchange rate. Like there's actual extortion going on in this moment. So much that Jesus would say that you have made the house of God into a den of robbers, where you're actively stealing 
from them. And to take it one step further, further to see what, what instigates this violent moment of indignation in Jesus, it's also this. Where's all this taking place? In the court of the Gentiles. You see, it's a commonly known thing that the Jews did not like non-Jewish people. That the Jewish people were racist against any non-Jew. That there was uh, hatred for, that they saw themselves as better than everyone else. That would lead them to turn the place, the largest space in the temple, to turn that place meant for Gentiles to worship. Why? Why? Why would Gentiles worship? Because God called Abraham and said this, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That God's intent in calling Israel to himself, this nation, was that they would display God to the world and the Gentiles would also believe and come and worship him in his temple. But they've made the place and the only place that Gentiles could worship a market square. A market square. There's another story, a parable Jesus tells to teach and instruct on the kind of worship that God finds honoring and to call out some things in the Pharisees. Uh, imagine uh, the contrast between what Jesus paints a picture for us in Luke 18 and, uh, and trying to go into the court of the Gentiles with this posture and heart and it being this chaotic, loud, noisy stock show of a place. Look with me in Luke 18. This will be up on the screen. Luke 18 through 13, there's a comparison between a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple. Um, this is what's honoring. This is the, the way in which Jesus says we ought to enter and worship. He says this in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Imagine finding yourself in a place where you are broken over your sin in deep desperation for God's forgiveness, mercy, and grace. And you know the place you come to commune in the presence of God is the temple, and you walk in to do that in the middle of Disney World and the Fort Worth Stock Show all at one time. It'd be impossible. It'd be impossible. You see, what Jesus gets so indignant about is what they've turned the place of worship into. Hypocrisy in how they're doing Passover. How? How, how do you say that? How do we see hypocrisy here? Well, well think about it this way. From afar, the temple looks great. You got two and a half million people coming to the temple every single Passover. I mean, the guys in charge are keeping count and they're celebrating. They're like, dude, you know how many people came to Passover this year? Two and a half million people came to Passover this year. You know what? I bet we can get even more people if we'll make worship really easy and convenient. Why don't we just bring the pigeons here in the temple, why don't we just bring all the lambs here in the temple, and then it'll be easier for people to come worship. It'll be easier for people to come and provide and offer sacrifice. It'll be so efficient, 
so efficient. You don't have to raise your own sheep and feel the weight and pain and loss of its death on your behalf as you've raised this from a lamb. No, you don't have to do that. We'll do all that for you. And guess what? People came by the thousands and millions because they made worship efficient and quick and clean and emotionless. And all it cost you was some money and time. You see, they've made the temple look like a busy, bustling, fruitful, luscious, busting at the seams place of worship. But upon closer inspection, it's filled with extortion and robbery and no worship at all. You see, Jesus is righteously anger, angry and has indignation towards what's happening in the temple because it's filled with sin when it looks great on the outside. It's filled with more people they've ever had. They've made worship easy. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to do all the work. You just show up. You just do it. You just pay your money. We sacrifice it for you. And it's filled with hypocrisy because on the outside it looks awesome. But on the inside, at a closer look, there's no prayer. There's no worship. It's a market. A busy, bustling, loud, noisy, stinky, crowded, distracted, efficient, worshipless, prayerless temple. Does God desire busyness in His church? Does God desire efficiency and ease? It seems here that what He desires is your heart to be in a place and posture of prayer and worship. And on the outside, it looks good, but on the inside... The temple's fruitless. And the Jews were very, uh, they were what we'd call repeat offenders of this. They were repeat offenders of getting worship backwards. Uh, So much that throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly says things like this. This is in Psalm 51. David, after uh, epic sin failure, he says this in Psalm 51, verse 16. For you would not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. Like literally, he's just made one of the biggest sin blunders of his life. And he says this, God, right now in this moment of my sin and failure, you don't want me to go buy a lamb or take one of my millions from my flock and sacrifice it in the temple. I would not honor you. You would not find pleasure and delight in it. Because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now what God desires is not a bustling, busy, efficient temple, 
but one filled with people who understand their sin and are broken over it and come humbly desperate and needy before God, whom is the only one who can be merciful and gracious. The one whom we've offended in our sin. And so from a distance, the temple looks great. Just like from a distance, the fig tree looked great. But upon closer inspection, it raises anger and indignation because of the hypocrisy. You may have heard people who talk about like hypocrisy in the church and those kinds of things. And, and God it does not... We see Jesus here. He hates and becomes angry uh, and indignant against and at hypocrisy. Uh, but oftentimes we get hypocrisy and just being a plain old sinner confused. Like hypocrisy is when, someone, uh, when somebody claims or pretends to be righteous or without sin, but they have sin. And oftentimes, even the watching world looks at the church and says, like, oh, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And the famous Brennan Manning quote of uh, the number one cause of atheism in the world, which I don't think is true now, but 20 years ago maybe when he said this, is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips. They say, I love Jesus, but they walk out the church and they deny him by the way they live their lives. There's this disconnect between what they say externally, what it looks like, what they appear to believe, and who they are, what they actually do, displayed in their, in their life and actions. The watching world oftentimes looks at the church and says, oh, you bunch of hypocrites, because you say and you preach moral superiority and and obeying God's word and his law, and you don't do it, uh, as if we are saying Christians are perfect people, which is where they are wrong, where we oftentimes are wrong. The Christians aren't perfect people, and we become hypocrites when we act like we're perfect people. So being a hypocrite is acting like a perfect person when you're not a perfect person or portraying yourself like one. The word hypocrite, to play the hypocrite was an actual acting role. You put on a face, act like you're something that you're not. Being a simple sinner is somebody who fails to live up to the righteousness of God, which is every one of us. And what God's desire is, is that his temple or his church is filled with people who acknowledge that they are sinners in desperate need of the grace and mercy of Jesus every single day. So the question for us is, is before we dive into the last bit of this passage, is do you look from a distance different than you really are from up close? When we talk about our spiritual vitality, strength, in action, what we do, our health. Do we look one way from a distance, but upon closer introspection, we find something entirely different? I'm going to leave that for us for a minute to just feel and sit under. Because Jesus doesn't leave this here, but he instructs the disciples on what does please the Lord. If this is not pleasing to the Lord... What is pleasing to the Lord? In verses 20 down through 25, unpack this for us. That God delights in faith, in our faith. It says in verse 20, this is the next day, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree, the one that Jesus cursed, withered away to its root. And Peter answered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to the mountain, be taken up or thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also is, who he your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So we have two things taking place here. One, the fig tree is cursed, and it's withered. It's dead all the way to its root. This is, this is specifically Jesus completing the full circle of his prophetic symbol. In the Old Testament, prophets would do these acts and signs, and when they would happen the way that they said they would happen, it was evidence and proof that they were a true prophet. And so when Jesus curses this fig tree, if they walk by the next day and it's just standing there like it was the day before, it's like, okay, Jesus said something wrong. But no, when they walk by the fig tree and what Jesus said has come to pass, he curses this tree, no one will eat of your fruit again, and it's dead. It's evidence and proof that Jesus is the prophet, the promised prophet who would come, the king, the savior, the high priest, the one who would save his people. Come in full circle to see the prophecy fulfilled. And then Jesus instructs his disciples. In contrast to what was taking place in the temple, which was no prayer, what brought about righteous indignation in God was that his temple was void of prayer, and in so void of faith in God. We see Jesus instructing his disciples outside of the temple that faith looks like prayer. That what's pleasing and honoring to the Lord, what's fruitful, is prayer. That we have faith in God. We believe in Him. We believe that He is powerful enough, capable enough, able to do mighty and amazing things. Able to do the greatest thing ever, which is to provide forgiveness of sin by the sacrifice of Jesus, His Son, on the cross and His resurrection in your place. What's honoring and pleasing, what brings delight to God is that you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that you perform external spiritual actions and look really nice on the outside. And what does the gospel require? It requires that you own your failure. Confess it to the Lord and believe that Jesus paid the punishment for your sin. That the gospel frees us from the need to perform, to hide, to pretend, and play the hypocrite. It also shows us this. This, this is the power of God here. It's that God is capable of doing miraculously powerful things for us. And here's the deal. We oftentimes in this moment go like, man, I really need God to do this thing. Well, I need God to do that thing. Man, I need God to change that person's heart or, or to heal this or do this or, or provide here. And we think externally. Everything Jesus has done is not about external things in the story. What about internal things? Pointing to that what we need God to do most is not miracles in the world around us, although those are real things, but we need Him to do what He and He alone is capable of doing, which is in His miraculous power to bring change in our hearts. Harder than moving a mountain into the sea is changing the heart of a man or woman. Your heart. What we need most is not external things, but faith in God. And the gospel 
Believing in Jesus frees us from sin and shame and enables us to begin removing the mask, to stop pretending, and to come to our good Father for help for where we have sinned. You see, Jesus died so we'd be freed from sin, from shame, from hypocrisy. Do you really believe the gospel? Like, I ask you that now. Not to cause doubt in Christians. But have you really put your faith and trust in Jesus? Not do you know that Jesus died, but have you come humbly, broken, contrite over your sin to our God who's a good Savior and ask for His forgiveness and grace? If not today, do do that. Believe the gospel today. Stop playing the religious game. God is angry at the religious game. You might be fooling your family or us or your friends, but you can't fool God. You see, God shows through this story, through this, this prophetic symbol and the cleansing of the temple, that He has great concern for your spiritual health. That God's concerned about your spiritual vitality. Your strength, your spiritual strength, and your spiritual action. And Jesus directly confronts this concern in the people here who looked from the outside strong, busy, effective, efficient, but were spiritually fruitless. All the leaves, none of the figs. Are you? concerned about your spiritual health. In the hustling and bustling and busyness of life, are you concerned about your spiritual health? About your inner person? It's easy to just deal with external things. I mean, it feels sometimes like it's hard to show up, like literally to show up at church. But that's a lot easier than dealing with your heart, your sin, Do you take responsibility for your spiritual well-being? Do you prioritize in your schedule, in your life, your spiritual health? Being a part of the gathering of God's people is essential. Like here, Sunday, you're here. But on a daily basis, do you prioritize? Are you concerned? Does it cross your mind about your spiritual health and well-being? about the sin that's taking place inside of you? Does it bother you if you don't think about God except for on Sunday morning? It should. Because Jesus is deeply concerned about what's going on here, not what's going on out here. That was tree leaves, by the way. It starts with you personally taking responsibility for your spiritual well-being, your spiritual health. And sometimes taking responsibility simply looks like, I need help, I need to meet with somebody, will you talk to me, will you listen, can we read the Bible together, help me. But it moves in, outwardly from there. Inside the church, we as members of Trailview take active responsibility and covenant relationship for one another's spiritual well-being. 
where we care for one another, how you're doing internally, where, where we ought to be asking not just what are you doing this week, but what's going on inside of you this week. See, hypocrisy is dangerous, and it parades like an innocent, not dangerous thing. It's not a big deal. What's the big deal about hiding and pretending? It doesn't seem like that big, big of a deal to act like you're spiritually healthy, to act like your marriage is loving and following Jesus, to act like you're sexually pure. What's the big deal about acting about it? Because it deceives you. And it starves you. And, like we saw here, God is not pleased by hypocrisy. So what's the anecdote to, spiritual, or anecdote to hypocrisy? So we're going to finish right here. So I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team to come up because then I'll hurry. Um, the antidote to hypocrisy is this, humility. The antidote for hypocrisy is humility. And humility starts by us owning the reality of our inner being. What am I, what's really going on inside of me? What's really happening inside of me? And here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel enables me to be honest. It enables me to be honest about my sin. It enables me to be honest, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and God will help you to rewrite that. It enables us to be honest. Why? Because this is the truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no judgment from God to you for being honest about your need or His church. So we remind ourselves of the gospel that we are forgiven, justified, and there's no condemnation for us. Owning, taking responsibility for our sin and weakness and coming humbly and courageously vulnerable before our God and one another in full transparency and vulnerability. And asking Him to do miracles in your heart. Maybe it looks like today for you, for the first time in a long time, pulling back the mirage of your tree that doesn't have any fruit and going, I'm not luscious and fruitful like I act like I am. And we're going to sing a song uh, called, O Come to the Altar. And it says this, Are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you drink or thirst for and drink from the well? Jesus is calling. And it's an invitation for us to step out of the dark and to stop hiding, to stop playing the hypocrite, and to step into the reality that the gospel enables us to be honest and needy. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be in the back. I'd love to talk with you, hear from you. If there's things you need to just say to somebody, pray over you. I'm sure there's others who would love to do that as well. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would that you would be pleased and honored by what's happening in this place now. That it wouldn't be an empty shell or a foliage-filled tree, but it would be a fruitful moment where we come humbly and honest, broken and contrite before you, our gracious, merciful God. And remember that in Jesus alone do we find forgiveness of sin. In Jesus alone are we transformed more into uh, the image of Jesus. Jesus. Holy. Not in pretending, not in performing, not in playing the game or the charade, 
So God, would you work in us now? Would you give us confidence in the gospel to be courageously vulnerable about what's actually happening inside of us with you and with one another? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.